Well, good morning. I hope you've had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I hope you ate way too much turkey. I hope the pie was everything you dreamed of. I hope there was plenty of gravy. Now, we are finishing this Sunday morning our study in the Gospel of Matthew that we began at the beginning of the year. But I want to start off by saying welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning in person and online at 10.30 a.m. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor here at Faith on Hill. And I don't know where you're at or how you are watching or listening to this. Uh, We have a lot of ways to connect with us. Faithonhill.com, there is a live stream every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. And if you scroll down below that, you can find the audio versions of the Sunday morning and all of our podcasts. We also have the 20-minute Bible study that's currently going through the book of 2 Samuel. We have the Starting Points podcast, which is designed to kind of be an introduction or a reintroduction uh, to reading the Bible. And we go through books and major sections of the Bible one episode at a time. We also have our long-form conversational podcast called Talk About Anything. And you can find those on our website, faithonhill.com. You can subscribe to them on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And if you follow us on Facebook, the video versions are always there. And if you're on Facebook, uh, or even if you're not, but you, you do follow us on Facebook, give this a like, maybe give it a share. That'd be awesome. Now, uh, as I said, we're going to finish the gospel of Matthew this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Well, we started studying the gospel of Matthew last year. It took us a year to get through this book. Uh, We started last Christmas with the Christmas story through uh, through Matthew's gospel, and then we just began studying the book, you know. And uh, then when we got to Holy Week, Palm Sunday, the week between Palm Sunday and Easter, Good Friday, Easter, we studied out of Matthew's gospel those stories. And so that's why we aren't going to go through those chapters, uh, 26 and 27, and the first part of chapter 28, because we've already done that. So if you uh, weren't with us, but you've been following along in the gospel of Matthew, you can go back uh, to April when we did those verses and those chapters. But after Jesus rose from the dead, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, Matthew says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Why is it 11? Well, because Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, had betrayed Jesus. Now, all of the disciples betrayed Jesus. All of them said that they would stay with him no matter what. But when the guards came in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, they all fled. Only Peter followed close behind, but then when Peter was called out for being one of his followers, he denied three times that he even knew Jesus. He cursed someone out for suggesting that he was one of Jesus' followers. They had all betrayed Jesus. Why is it that Judas is singled out as the betrayer? Well, there's two reasons. First is that his betrayal was one of malice. 
whereas the other disciples' betrayal was one of fear or cowardice. And I think we can understand that there's some intentionality involved. But also, and I think this is the far bigger and far more important reason, because Judas did not repent. Judas did not repent. Peter repented and was restored. The other disciples repented and were restored. And not all of them believed right away. Verse 17 said that when they saw him, speaking of Jesus, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And we know, of course, from the other gospels that uh, Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, specifically doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. But they repented and they came back. Judas did not repent. In fact, he killed himself. He took away the opportunity. He took away the opportunity for life change because he took his life. I'm just going to say this right now. The holidays are a hard time. Thanksgiving begins a season of celebration and of joy for many, but for many others, the holidays are a hard time. The change in season and weather is hard. The reminders of who is no longer with us is hard. The reminders of who is still with us but we have broken relationship with is hard. The fact that, oh my goodness, I have to go see family where I might have to interact with somebody who has been horrible to me. Maybe I even have to see my abuser. And by the way, I don't recommend that. I don't think anybody is under obligation to go to Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner if an abuser is present. But that's a reality for many people. So the holidays are hard. And I want to acknowledge that. And I want to say, if you're struggling, if you're in a dark place, if the clouds are surrounding you, if you feel like your head is sinking below the waves, reach out. Get help. I believe in Jesus, and I also believe in therapy. I believe in Jesus, and I also believe in seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I believe in Jesus, and also that we have medicine, and we can, and we can take medicine to help our mental health the same way that you know, we could take an aspirin if you have a headache for our physical health, right? I, I believe that we should and must guard our own souls And we think, oh, that's not something for Christians. That's something that only the weak deal with. No, some of the strongest people I know deal with these issues. You think, oh, that's just for non-believers or weak Christians. No, some of the most spiritually strong people I know have been in this place. In fact, this last week, our leaders and pastors from our family of churches in Washington and Oregon gathered together and, and one of our pastors shared a, a wonderful story of victory, but, but he shared how a couple of years ago he had plans set up to end his life and he had gotten into a bad place in his mental health and because of false things he had heard, not from any pastor or preacher, but just people that about how Christians should deal with mental health. He didn't reach out for help for a long time. And then he started going to see a counselor and he started getting medication. He dealt, the, dealt with the things that needed to be dealt with. And he's in a healthy place now. And now he actually, he drives over the very bridge where he is planning on taking his life and he sees it as a monument to God's grace and mercy in his life. Wonderful story. 
Judas took away the opportunity for life change. I firmly believe that if Judas had not ended his life and if he had been there just a few more days to see the resurrected Jesus and if he had said, forgive me, that Jesus would have forgiven him instantly and he would have welcomed him back. I believe that with all my heart because we have seen it time and again for others who have been in the same place. But he didn't. Now, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What this tells us is that Matthew is not trying to give us the full minute-by-minute account of what happened after the resurrection. Matthew's gospel is long. It's one of the two longer gospels, Matthew and Luke. Now, for us, that's not a big deal. We live in a digital world. The, the amount of words or letters or pages is very theoretical. It's all, you know, zeros and ones on a computer screen. But when you wrote something in the first century, you had to have it fit on the length of a scroll. It had to fit parchment. These things were incredibly valuable. And so you had to be economical and know when to expand and when to you know, pull back. And Matthew has large teaching sections of Jesus that he wanted to focus on. And then he kind of gets economical here. In the same way, other gospel writers, John, uh, you know, he, Luke, they, they give a more full account of what happened in the time between Jesus' resurrection and when he ascended to heaven uh, on the day of uh, Pentecost. Or sorry, excuse me, before the day of Pentecost. And he I think it's okay to understand that, that we have multiple gospel writers for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was what were they emphasizing, who were they writing to, and that Matthew is just saying, hey, this is not a complete account. I'm giving you the short version. He would rather talk about this next part than the stuff that happened in between. So it says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And that's, by the way, why I think people get off track sometimes because they have a per- they have a particular theological opinion or persuasion, and then they'll see some part of one of the Gospels, and they'll say, well, see, uh, this, this doesn't talk about anything that you're talking about, so it proves my opinion. And that's why we need the whole Bible. We've just finished three weeks talking about Bible prophecy. I don't believe that Matthew 24 and 25 is the be-all and end-all of Bible prophecy. I think it's part of the bigger picture. And we understand that we have four Gospel writers so that we have a fuller picture of what happened and what Jesus did and what he taught and who he was and how he interacted with people. We know that Jesus first met his disciples in Jerusalem and then they went to the Galilee. I mean, this, this thing is both can be true and not contradictory. The bigger thing is that they worshiped him and even those who doubted had the freedom to doubt and then work through it towards faith in Jesus. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he is proclaiming to them his victory. Jesus is saying to them, I did it. I went to the cross. My sacrifice was accepted. I have returned victorious over sin and death. And now all authority has been handed to me. The human part of Jesus has been given all human authority. The divine part of Jesus, fully God, fully human, the divine Jesus is there victorious. 
Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I have this authority, go. Because I have this authority, I am sending you. So when we go about the work that God has given us, whatever God has called you to do, you do so because of the authority of Jesus. You do so not because somebody said, I think you should do that, although sometimes that can be an encouragement or a confirmation of a calling, but we do so because of the authority that Jesus has as the one who is victorious over sin and death. We, we proclaim the good news because Jesus has won the victory. We, we do the work that we do because of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and what is the work that he has for us to do. He says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey every command that I give you, and surely I am with you until the end, the very end of the age. So he gives them in a, a, a mission. This section is famously called the Great Commission. Uh, I have for years just simply referred to it as God's mission, to be a witness of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. God's mission, to be a witness of Jesus and make disciples of Jesus. What is that? What does it mean? Disciples aren't just fans. Disciples aren't just church attenders. They aren't even just church members. Disciples are people who give their lives, tra train themselves, change their lives to be like their master, to do their master's work, to follow after him. So he says, I want you to go to the whole world. And they took him seriously. Thomas went east to India some of the disciples went north into what we now think of as uh, the Balkans and Eastern Europe and even into what we would now think of as like the Ukraine and Russia. Some disciples went into Africa. Some disciples went into Europe. They took him seriously. They went everywhere. And they told everyone they could about Jesus. And then how do you make somebody a disciple? Oh, that is a hotly debated question in our day. The how do you make somebody a disciple? And there are all kinds of organizations and ministries and businesses, and let's call them businesses because sometimes that's what they are, who will sell the church, this will do what you need it to do to make disciples. And we have this idea that if we just get the people through like an eight-week course, you go through this eight-week course, you get a little certificate, boom, stamped, discipled, boom, stamped, you know, uh, confirmed, boom, stamp, church member, and now you're good. You have everything that you need to know. I don't think that's real. I believe in lifelong learning, and I believe that because it's how we do it. I, I mean, I've been out of school for a long time now. I haven't been in high school for a long time. Now, I was recently in college again, you know, doing uh, some graduate work a couple years ago, but, but I have been out of high school for a long time. You got to be a continual, lifelong learner, a continual reader, studier, uh, question asker, uh, you know, all of these things. And I think that's how discipleship works. I, I think there's nothing against, if you took like an eight-week course on like something that was called like a, you know, eight-week discipleship course, there's nothing wrong with that. If it helped build you up, if it helped train you in some area, if it helped encourage you, if it helped strengthen you, 
fantastic. But discipleship is a lifelong process of learning how to be like Jesus, how to follow Jesus, how to do Jesus' work. He says that when we make disciples, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a symbol that Jesus gave the church to signify outwardly what has already happened on the inside. That God changed us. That we were this person, sinful, wicked, rebellious, hurting, broken. And God took us, buried that old person, that old woman, that old man, raised up to life in Jesus, a new creation. And we are his now. And baptism is that symbol of being buried and brought back up, of being fully immersed in the work of God, of being washed clean and made new. I am not um, legalistic on baptism. I believe in general the symbol is for full immersion baptism, but we are not legalistic. When my friend Bill Spies became a Christian, he was in his hospice bed. I sprinkled him with water. Uh, we have uh, friends who you know, we've baptized who couldn't get into a baptismal to, to be dunked, and so we have dunked them with buckets of water. Uh, the, there's all kinds of, of different ways to do this, but the symbol is what is important. The public declaration of the work Jesus has done. It is amazing to me how many Christians have not been baptized. I know of Christians who have been Christians a long time who are actually in ministry leadership positions who have never been publicly baptized. And it's at this point, they're actually, it's almost like pride. Like, I don't need that. I won't do that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna admit that there's something I should have done years ago. And you know what? If I just did it right now, I'd be obedient to Jesus. The church would love to see it. We would embrace, not judge. But I'm not gonna do it because of my pride. And you're saying, Adam, that's judgmental. You don't know what's inside somebody's heart. You're right, I don't, I don't. I'm basing what I'm saying on very specific conversations with people I have known over the years and what they have said about why they are not baptized and why they refuse, absolutely refuse, to be baptized. If you need to be baptized, then talk to me. Let's get you baptized. If Jesus has changed your life, if you have a saving faith, if inwardly you have believed and you need and want to be obedient to him and publicly declare it through baptism, then let's get that done. We aren't baptized in any name. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says that Christians are to teach these new disciples to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, this is a point that we have to wrestle through because the question that the church is asking itself right now, and by the way, we are ahead of the curve here on the West Coast, here in the Pacific Northwest, here in Oregon. We're ahead of the curve. We've already been dealing with questions that churches in the Midwest are just now starting to ask themselves because they have stuck their head in the sand, quite honestly, for a number of years, pretending that they weren't going to have to deal with this stuff. That's stuff that only happens out there in California or in Oregon, you know, 
keep Portland weird and you guys are a bunch of weirdos, but we aren't going to have to deal with it in Iowa or New Hampshire or Nebraska or wherever. I know New Hampshire's not in the Midwest, but it is what it is. The point is, how do we teach disciples to obey every command? Well, we don't teach people not to eat bacon anymore. Is that what Jesus meant? He says, every command that I have commanded you. Let's start there. Let's start with the teachings of the apostles. Let's start there. Before we can get into like, we can, we can deep dive into some like of the minutiae or the obscure or Le- the Leviticus of it all. Let's just start with the teachings of the gospels and the teachings of the apostles. Yes, we command or we teach everything that we have been commanded, that we have received. We, be- we believe and affirm those things. What we don't teach, what we don't automatically affirm, are the traditions of people, right? And so there are Christian traditions that people have elevated as if they are Scripture. And they say, why don't you affirm these things? And it's because it's not actually in the Bible. We don't affirm those things because they're the traditions of people, not what's in the Bible. Someone else might come and say, this is in the Bible, and you don't make a big deal about it. Why is that? Well, let me tell you this. There are things that are in the Bible that are beliefs that both the Christian faith holds and the culture holds. And the church, the universal church, true believers, exists in cultural contexts. Christians in Bolivia and Christians in South Africa, and Christians in Singapore, and Christians in Seoul, South Korea, and Christians here in Portland, Oregon, are all of the same faith, the same Holy Spirit. We are all sisters and brothers unified through Jesus. But we exist in different cultural contexts, and that's just in 2022. Then you go back throughout the different ages of the church and recognize that there have not just been different geographical contexts, but different historical contexts. And in each context, there are beliefs that both the Christian faith affirms and that the culture affirms. Those are easy. And then there are beliefs that the Christian faith affirms that the culture does not. And that requires walking people through some things. Now, what happened is in the, in, at some point within the last decade or two, things shifted. And it used to be that the church and the culture agreed, whether we lived, either one lived those things out to be true, they agreed that this was right and this was right and this was wrong and this was wrong. And that has shifted. So, now you say, okay, what are things that the church and the culture now agree is right or wrong. And I don't believe that there is no agreement. The church and the culture agree human trafficking is an evil, is a blight. The church and the culture agree that suicide is an epidemic, that, that uh, we have an epidemic of substance abuse. Now, we disagree about how to deal with it and its causes, but we can agree that what's going on with the fentanyl problems and addictions and what was going on with the opioid epidemic that is still going on in some parts of the country, those things 
are, are problems and, and not good, and we agree on those things. We, we can agree that racism is evil. These are things that we can agree on. And instead of making everything that defines us, the B beliefs, the things that we don't have common ground with the culture on, why don't we say, hey, where can we start? Somebody comes to faith, I start with Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus said. And there are those who want me and other preachers and pastors to define everything that we do based off of the most divisive command possible, whatever that is. And I would rather just stay focused on Jesus and begin to show his love and his power. Because Jesus connected with sinners. He connected with prostitutes. He connected with uh, corrupt tax collectors. Uh, you know, in some ways you could say like he's, con- he's connecting with Antifa and the Wall Street 1%. He, he would have been there among the Occupy Wall Street as much as he would have been with the Wall Street. Connecting with sinners. And that is what we do. When we say I, we teach people to obey everything I've commanded you, I totally agree with that. We're working through how do we live within the holiness of God while not being stuck in the traditions of man. That's what we do when we study the word of God together on Sunday mornings, in our small groups, with our teaching podcasts. We work through how in 2022 and soon to be 2023, how do we live in our cultural context in the commands of God and yet focus on the most important things. And then Jesus finishes and says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How is Jesus with us? Well, I can think of two main ways. There are two primary ways that Jesus is with his people until he returns. The very end of the age is speaking of what we've just been talking about for the last three weeks, about his second coming, about his returning for the renewal of all things, about his coming to set things right. How is Jesus with us? There's two ways I can think of that are primary ways. The first is through the church. Jesus said where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is. In the book of Revelation chapter 1, there's a picture of the churches, you know, the local churches, and it shows Jesus walking among them. He's present in his church. I believe that. I believe that when I gather with other believers in harmony, in peace, in unity, as much as possible, that I there will experience the presence of Jesus in a way that I will not on my own. And when Jesus says, I am with you always, that as I walk connected to his church, gathered with two or more in unity in his name, that he is with us, even to the very end of the age. The other way that I believe is very directly living out this promise is that of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that we should teach new disciples, that we should baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them with water. 
but that we should also be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is something that has a lot of different contexts or baggage or whatever. That somebody might come and they say, I grew up in this kind of church, and so what you just said is freaking me out. And somebody else might come and say, I grew up in this kind of church, and I'm, I'm like, ooh, this is exciting. And somebody else might say, I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, that happened in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul came to a city where they had already heard the gospel, but they hadn't been taught about the Holy Spirit. And so they asked, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we don't even know what you're talking about. And so he instructed them more fully in it. There is one God, one God who reveals himself in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, equally God with Jesus and the Father. The Holy Spirit of God is with humanity in three distinct ways. I believe that the Holy Spirit of God, and I believe this because of the Bible, is with every person calling them to Jesus. The spirit of truth saying, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. By the way, that gives me great encouragement that as I am a witness of Jesus, God's mission to be a witness of Jesus and to make disciples, as I am a witness of Jesus, I only need to speak what I've known. I can give testimony. I can give evidence for what Jesus has done in my life, for what I know to be true. And the Holy Spirit is doing the work. I can encourage people in their discipleship to become like Jesus, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the work. So the Holy Spirit is with people, calling them to Jesus. When somebody becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit takes residence within your soul. The Bible says that when we become Christians, it's, as I said earlier, we died and our life is now hidden in God with Christ. And that happens through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, putting his presence in us. But there is a final third work of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers in power. And we see this throughout the New Testament where it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them. Somebody was full of the Holy Spirit and did something. Somebody was full of the Holy Spirit and stood firm. Somebody was full of the Holy Spirit and did not do something. We don't think about that a lot. We, we like the stand firm and the do stuff because we're Americans and we're people of action. But there's times where the Holy Spirit was restricting. Don't go there. I don't want you to do this thing. I want you to pause. To know that Jesus is with us fully is to be full of the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit in us when we become Christians, and to have the Holy Spirit come upon us. Now, you can be a Christian and have the Holy Spirit in you and not have the Holy Spirit on you. How do I know this? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, the original Christians were Christians. It says that after Jesus rose from the dead, he breathed on them and they received the Spirit. And yet they still had to go to Jerusalem and wait after Jesus ascended to heaven for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. So the Holy Spirit was in them, but not upon them yet. And we see in the book of Acts that there were Christians who had genuine saving faith, but the Holy Spirit had not yet descended on them. While there were other Christians who in their hearts believed in God, they didn't say a prayer, nobody led them through any process, they just in their hearts believed, and then the Holy Spirit immediately descended on them. 
We don't know why God does things the way he does, the way he chooses to move or act or whatever. There are moments in time where the Holy Spirit has come upon people. The Holy Spirit has come upon people and it has been seemingly out of nowhere. And there have been other times where people have been prayed for, where, where people have sought earnestly and then they have received this baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it is for you, how it looks. For some people, if you're a Pentecostal, they'll emphasize the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. You know, healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, which is praising God in a language you do not know. That's biblical, by the way. I've seen it happen and happen appropriately. I've experienced it myself. I believe that all of those things are biblical. Others make the emphasis of the work of the Holy Spirit living in holiness. Others make the emphasis the work of the Holy Spirit um, all about gospel preaching. Why not all of it? Whatever God chooses to do, however God chooses to move or to work, why not be open to all of it? Why not say, God, whatever you want to do in my life, I know that you are good and your ways are good and I will accept whatever you have for me. You know, at the beginning, in verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. There are times in my life where I have doubts, where I have struggles, where I have uncertainties. And there I say, Lord, fill me fresh, fill me new, fill me again, baptize me as if it had never happened before with your Holy Spirit so that you can walk with me through these doubts. There are times where I need great faith. Lord, would you fill me again with your Holy Spirit in a fresh way so that I may have faith that comes from you to stand in the gap where I lack faith. There are times where I do not have love and maybe the Holy Spirit will do that work. Years ago, I was a church janitor and there was a lady, she had some mental health issues, but she was frustrating. And I prayed one day, Lord, help me to love this woman. Because, see, she would show up on Sunday and people in the church knew who she was and she was like kind of frustrating. And yet they didn't have to deal with her like I did because I was the church janitor. So it might be Saturday night and I'm cleaning the church and then there's a bang, 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 bang on one of the big windows. And she's, it's like six o'clock on a Saturday night and she's like, why are the doors locked? I am here for church. It is Sunday morning. No, it's not. It could be Thursday night and you're doing something in there. Bang, 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 bang. What's going on? Why is there nobody here? It's Thursday night. Nothing is happening tonight. And people, it just gets so frustrating. And, and, and if there was like a wedding, like she would just barge into weddings and, and expect to be like treated like one of the mo you know, most honored guests and just all this stuff. And I just prayed, Lord, help me, to, help me to love this lady because she is so frustrating. And I, I've never had this happen since. I've actually asked this for a few other people. And for whatever reason, God hasn't made it that easy in my life. But for this woman, from that day forward, I could never get mad at her that she would do the most frustrating things, the most vexing things, the most outrageous things. And in my heart, it would just go, okay, 
And people would just be getting frustrated and I'd walk over and I'd see what was going on and I'd go, I got this, I got this. Edith, come on over here. And I'd take care, you know, take care of what was, whatever was going on. And sometimes taking care of whatever was going on was like, Edith, you got to go. This is a, a wedding. This is a private family event. This isn't a church event. You know, you need to let them have their, their space. This is a funeral. You need to respect them. And sometimes it would just be me kicking her out of the building for a little bit. But I could never find anger for her anymore. I believe that that was the work of the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus being present with me always to the very end of the age. If you can look back on your faith and say, I don't know if I've ever received the Holy Spirit, then this is a morning to pray and ask to receive. If you don't know if you have faith, then this is a morning to say yes to the Holy Spirit calling to you saying, Jesus is real. Jesus is king. Jesus is the answer. There is always a call from God and there is always the opportunity for Christians to respond. There is always a call from God and there is always an opportunity for non-Christians to become Christians. The Holy Spirit is working and moving. Jesus has given us our marching orders. For us who are Christians, the only way we do it is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way that we make all of this work is by God's power and not ours. So if you're not a believer, I invite you, I implore you, I beg you, consider Jesus this morning. Answer the call of God's Holy Spirit on your life. And if you are a Christian and you say, I don't know that I've ever received the Holy Spirit, ask. If you're a Christian and you say, I know that I've experienced the work of God's Spirit in my life before, but you know what? That was then and I don't know what it looks like now ask. If you're a Christian and you say, you know what, I I know that God's Spirit is working in my life, rejoice. God's given us a mission to be a witness of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. God's given us some basic things to do. Teach people, encourage people, show people the way, be obedient to him in baptism. And he's given us the power to do it because he hasn't said, just do it on your own strength. No, he actually said, you can't do it on your own strength. He said, do it in my strength. And here is my spirit and my power to bring you there. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would meet you wherever you are at and that you, in his grace, would respond to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would experience that where you are this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you in the small groups this week and back again next Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We are the cold and starving. We are the scared and trembling. We are the desperately lost. We are the lonely.